I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our websites are Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com. And this Memorial Day week is usually the unofficial kickoff of summer. I know that summer actually doesn't officially start till right around my birthday in late June. But the reality is, for a lot of people, this is the kickoff to summer. And I've talked about how different summer vacations are going to be this year with people uh, doing driving trips, usually within 500 miles of home. The number of people flying on airplanes has reached lows, I think, last seen in the 1930s, maybe. I mean, it's really unreal how few people are traveling by airplane. People don't feel comfortable with that. So we're going to be on road trips. And the idea when you're on the road of stopping at a hotel is one that people feel like they're they're really unequipped to know how safe that is or not. Now, in reality, you are overwhelmingly safe staying in a hotel as long as you keep distance from other people. But in a hotel room, that's where you can have some risks, you know, the handles you touch and the bathroom, things like that. And this is actually easier than you might think for you to be safe when you're on the road. You don't want to congregate in the lobby of the hotel where you'd be in close proximity to a lot of people. But when you get to the room, you want to think about you open that door to go into the room. Who's touched that door handle? We don't know yet how much true danger there is from touching a surface someone else has touched who may be infected with coronavirus, but you know you're touching a handle other people have touched. When you turn on the sink, when you flush the toilet, when you touch any handle in your room, the important thing is washing your hands. I mean, it's no different than anywhere else you might be that washing your hands is core and key to you protecting yourself. As far as uh, surfaces within a hotel room being infected, again, when you look at what the CDC has said, that the real danger is person-to-person transmission, and the odds are that any surfaces are going to be okay, but again, having disinfectant wipes, if you've been able to find them, in order to be able to clean a surface that you're going to be touching is a great way for you to have peace of mind. But the answer to everything in a hotel room or anywhere else is the hand washing. And as long as you do that, you're going to be in a position you should be absolutely A-OK and safe to stay in that hotel. And hotels have been running occupancies that are unbelievably low. So odds are you're going to find very, very good deals 
on hotel rooms. I've been looking around, and hotel prices are the lowest I've seen since 2008 in most places. 2008, right at the height of the effects of the banking scandals. And so it sapped all the demand. And I think you're going to find that you're going to get these really good deals and be safe at the same time and go enjoy yourself. Go see some part of America. It's time for your questions. And I ask you to post your questions for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel alternate asking your questions for you. And Kim, what do you have first? This is from Brian in Florida. He wants to know, what's the best way to save money for my grandchild? I'm not that much interested in an education account. He's two, and who knows what education will look like in 18 years from now. I'm thinking something like cash or gold or silver or government bonds. What do you suggest? Well, I would say, actually, to open a custodial account at, as an example, at Fidelity Investments. Fidelity, which has normally retail offices you can walk into all over the country, the easiest right now is go to fidelity.com. Fidelity has an account you can open. You don't have to be opening an account for a kid. You could open an account for yourself. Anybody can do this, where you open a no minimum dollar amount account. And for that two-year-old grandchild of yours, put the money in the total stock market index fund at Fidelity, the Fidelity Zero Fund. It has no commissions to go into or out of and has no ongoing management expenses. Over a 20-year period, even in spite of the uncertainty of today, the greatest return you can have that will be heavily tax-advantaged is to have money for your grandchild in an index fund where you own little pieces of thousands of companies across the U.S. economy, and that's what I do. Now, if your grandchild eventually decided to go to college, then you have a bit of a problem because it affects your grandchild's eligibility for financial aid. Having money in, in the grandchild's name, that would be the case with a custodial account. But it's the smartest move and most efficient move I know when you want to put money aside for a child's future, but specifically not for college. Joel? Clark Jerry says, how do I find the best price and value on a 50-inch smart TV? So 50-inch TVs are a real inexpensive part of the television market. And what I would do is I would start at walmart.com. Walmart offers very, very low prices on off-brand TVs, which is what I'd like you to be looking at instead of a brand name. And 50-inch TVs during sale periods will be cheaper than this. But right now, 50-inch TVs are starting at around $200. You know, Black Friday, a 50-inch TV this Black Friday may be as little as $100, but right now around 200 The reason TV prices are up some 
because people are spending a lot more time at home and they've been buying more TVs. And I'm looking, a lot of TVs are actually out of stock right now because people have been buying so many. But figure the $200 price point is about what you look for for a 50-inch. And remember, the brand name does not matter. The data shows that these TVs are so reliable and the pictures so good one to another, save your money. Kim? Victoria in North Carolina says, Hi, Clark. My husband and I have had a rental property since 2008. And now, because my husband is close to retirement, we're deciding to sell it. We have no idea what kind of taxes we're going to pay. Is it going to be added to our joint income? And do they count anything for depreciation for all these years? Yeah, so if you've been depreciating the property over the years, you probably had money that has been um, held back because you're limited how much of the depreciation you can claim each year. That depreciation will ultimately offset uh, some of the gain that you have since you have carry forwards. And this is something that you report the gain on the property where you take what you paid for it originally you have the depreciation, then what you sell it for, net of selling expenses. And when you sell an investment property, it is my belief that this is a time that you don't do your own tax return. That when you're selling a property, it's when it's ultra valuable for you to use either an enrolled agent, that's someone who is registered as a tax expert with the IRS, or that you use a CPA who does tax to do your return for you so that you properly report that rental property. I had, at one time I had five rental properties, now I'm down to one. And as I've sold each of those over the last few years, I can tell you the tax computations have been amazingly complicated. And that's why using a tax expert this time, if not others, would be very valuable to you. Joel? Clark Roberts says, we hear a lot of ads on the radio about fraudsters stealing our home title or and then home equity. Do you recommend uh, getting title monitoring service? And then how can we prevent th this uh, from happening in general? So great question. It's one of those things that the marketplace has put in people's minds. The reality is, and we surveyed five real estate lawyers independently of each other on whether or not they recommended that people buy this kind of uh, title protection coverage and it was unanimous none recommended it now the good news this is a very rare crime and now more and more counties around the country have a procedure where you can register your property for notification of any action against the title and these are free services in counties around the country because they don't want to stand idly by while title fraud might take place so it's possible something goofy could happen with somebody trying to uh, steal equity in your property 
but it is very, very rare. And one thing that was pointed out by two of the real estate lawyers is that even if you had some kind of monitoring service, the reality is that many times they would only be telling you about something that already happened rather than preventing a crime from taking place. Kim? Sam in Massachusetts says, what is the best strategy for a husband and wife to do wills so that they don't conflict with each other? In the event that we were to both die at the same time, whose wishes would be honored for care of the children if there's inconsistencies or conflicts in each other's wills? That is a phenomenal question. And it is really important that the two of you talk this through. Depending on state law, in many states, if a couple dies 31 days apart, what the instructions are in the second person's will for raising the children becomes the superior document. However, it becomes really a messy situation if a couple dies simultaneously and in each will has different instructions for who you'd like to have raising the children. So what I recommend is if it's at all possible to have a meeting of the minds on who would be raising the children. And uh, it seems like that's a conversation that needs to involve a compromise potentially on the part of both of you. And the compromise would be is that you really talk through who would be first in line and who would be second in line and see if you can come up with an agreement on that. It, the good news is it's a very rare occurrence that both people in a couple would die simultaneously. That is a very unusual circumstance, usually involving a tragic accident, and it is, thank goodness, a rare thing. The alternative is if it's something you can't come to an agreement on, go sit down with a lawyer who does wills, estates, and trusts and see if you can come up to a procedure the lawyer develops that will see that as best as possible, both of your wishes are met in some way that you can both be comfortable with. Today's Clark Rave fits the theme of what we've been talking about day after day with our Clark Rave. It's where individuals around the country of any age are stepping forward to fill needs to protect our fellow Americans as we face coronavirus. And today I want to talk about a teenager who's a senior in high school named Jonah. And he goes to Georgetown Day School, which is the prep school somewhat related to or directly related to Georgetown University, depending on how you look at that school's history. But Jonah is a kid who loves 3D printers. And there are a lot of people who tinker with them, who create products with them, or are hobbyists with them. And he knew that there was such a shortage of protective masks for first responders and other people involved in medicine, that he had an idea, why not use 3D printers to make a safe shield for people involved in providing care? 
And so he found online an open source design for, um, it looks like a welder's mask. That's a space. That's a face shield that's protective, and it has mushroomed around the country all from this teenager's idea. And 3D printers are now doing something that's known as print to protect, and they're making thousands of shields that are being distributed around the country. I love this. Teenagers, adults, all joining together to make a difference. A lot of the first orders for these went to firefighters and ambulance crews, people that are out there helping you and me stay safe. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's all about you learning ways to save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our websites are clark.com and clarkdeals.com. And I want to tell you that speaking of ripoffs, there's one that's mysteriously likely to happen in the month of June when we're hopefully turning our brains off and taking some time off and all the rest. There's been an inside the beltway fight going on for years that is going to affect you. So you may, if you have any kind of investment account, get a notice in the next few weeks that is one where you'll get legally gobbledygook from a stockbroker, financial planning firm, investment firm, whatever, that will be a disclosure that's more like a non-disclosure of whether they're really working for you or not. So... It's a new form that's supposed to, in theory, in a very uh, Orwellian kind of way, to tell you whether or not the person who is helping you with investing for your future is actually working for you or not. So the story is we've had this fight going on for eight years now over whether when you get investment advice from somebody, if they have to put you first, what's known as a fiduciary standard. The industry of brokers and also insurance companies are so powerful in Washington that they have been able to destroy the requirement that they work in your for your interests only, what's known as being a fiduciary. So they came up with this mamby-pamby alternative called best interest, which is a bunch of garbage. And you're going to get this notice that less than more is going to disclose to you that that individual is not really there serving you. Now, here's the thing. What you want to see clear as day is that somebody discloses to you that they are a fiduciary. If they are not a fiduciary, all the rest of this is just a bunch of hogwash. So a fiduciary is legally required to put you first. When somebody's not a fiduciary, 
they can put you in stuff that benefits the firm they work for or benefits them rather than you. And this is something you got to know. When you get the form, if you are investing with any organization and the form starts talking in terms that like really don't make it clear to you, the only thing you need to know is are they acting as a fiduciary? And if it doesn't say so, they're not, which means that they may put you in something because it gets more commissions. They may put you in something because the brokerage firm told them to put you in it. They may be putting you in things that have massive commissions, which will often be true with anything from any insurance company person who's handling things for you. You may even be stuck with things called surrender charges, where if you get into something and then you later want to get out, you have to pay huge fees to get out of it. The right way to invest, and I see no gray here, is if you want somebody's advice, it needs to be from somebody who puts your interests first, always, and only. You likely will have to pay for that advice. Typically, you pay a fee or you pay a percent of what you have to invest. That fee will range anywhere from a tiny fraction of 1%, usually capped at about 1%. And the more you understand about the games that are being played, particularly by full commission stockbrokers, any bank-related investment organization, and any insurance company, the more you know about the games, the more money you're going to end up with later on. The best thing to do, avoid any investing with any organization that's going to play games with you and do things that put you in second place or worse. Now, here on the Clark Howard Show, we're alternating asking questions that you posted for me at clark.com ask. And I want to tell you, I'm grateful to you for taking the time to post thousands and thousands of questions for me. And it gives us a great sense of what collectively is going on in people's minds right now, what concerns people have, and what problems you are facing. And producers Kim and Joel taking a, an alternating crack at asking your questions for you. And Kim, what do you have first? All right, this is from Lionel. He says, when refinancing, what's the range of closing costs that I should be looking at to let me know that I'm getting a good deal? What a wonderful question. And closing costs can range from $0 to a big percent of the amount of money you're borrowing. And so there is no right number. If you do a $0 close, what's known as a no closing cost refi, you take a higher than market interest rate in return for paying no closing costs. What I like you to do is many people only get quotes from a single lender, and that puts you in a weakened position. 
You want quotes from multiple lenders, especially on a refi, really easy to do with online lenders, credit unions, mortgage brokers and bankers. And so you're able to lay out three things. One, the interest rate. Two, if you're going to have to pay any points, each full point is 1% of the amount of money you're borrowing. And third, the stated closing costs. The lenders have to provide you that information when you get a quote. So you can compare from lender to lender what they're quoting you on rate, points, closing costs. What I'd like you to do, you figure out what's the best one based on the costs for each offer over the first 30 months. That seems to be the window that is the best comparison shopping. So if you take what you pay in monthly payments the first two and a half years, the points you'd have to pay, and the closing costs, add those together for each quote you have, you'll be able to figure out which overall loan is the lowest cost for you. And this, what I just said, is easier to compute than it sounds like. And the more you do that kind of homework, the better off you're going to be. And the more shopping you do, definitely the more money you'll save. An example, let's say you get multiple quotes, but you also have an individual, you've been getting a quote from, let's say, a mortgage broker or a loan officer at a credit union. And you really like that individual. You like how honest they seem to be, um, how good they are at responding to you. But their quote is not the lowest after you ran the math. You go back to them having gotten multiple quotes. You can say, this is what I found out there. Can you uh, do this offer also? And once they're in a competitive environment, they very well might be able to. Joel? Clark Andrew in Washington says, I'm looking to take a job that offers a health insurance stipend instead of traditional health insurance. I don't know yet what the amount of the stipend will be, but I'm wondering if you like stipends as a way of receiving health insurance. I have an HSA from a previous job into which I would deposit the stipend, and this job is in a state with a high cost of living. So you can only do that HSA deposit if you then buy a high deductible health insurance plan on your own. And I'm, and I'm following this right, Joel, that, that the poster would be responsible for buying their own health insurance. Right, yeah, they're getting the stipend and then they're buying it on their own. All right, so if you're buying on your own, you typically would go on the exchange um, at healthcare.gov and you see what HSA-eligible plans are available. When you select one of those, that triggers your eligibility to do that deposit into the HSA you have up to the limits you're allowed to that typically change every year. So you got to have the if-then. You have to have the qualifying HSA account. And this was this idea you brought to the table was one that was talked about a lot mid-last decade, you know, 2014, 15, 16. There was a lot of talk about people being given health stipends that you then would use to buy coverage and it really hasn't caught on there was another idea that employers would give you like a voucher and then you would pick from a number of insurance providers that they made available to you 
And that really hasn't caught on much either. So you're kind of off on your own with an employer offering this as a way for you to get health coverage. Kim? Jay in Georgia wants to know if you have any recommendations for a Wi-Fi booster or an enhancer of sorts. So there's a lot going on with Wi-Fi and a lot of people who are in that uh, group that have either school kids that were home doing school or uh, you are now doing work from home have found the weaknesses of the Wi-Fi in your house pretty glaring. So I'm not into extenders. I'm into you actually, if you can afford to, rolling out money that will cost you now from about $130 on up to, uh, gosh, you can spend several hundred on this, for what's known as a Wi-Fi mesh system. Wi-Fi meshes are far more sophisticated than having a router and a range extender and that they give you the identical Wi-Fi signal designed to reach every corner of your home. Depending on the size of your home, that's what can multiply out. But the basic systems tend to have three mesh devices. And instead of having a signal that then extends with a range extender, you have these mesh devices that work in concert typically They'll cover a home of, three of them will cover a home of 3,000 square feet or so and give the identical internet experience everywhere in the home. And it is a far superior thing to the old router idea. Uh, If you just go to any of the technology blogs like CNET or anything like that and you put in wireless mesh, you'll see reviews of which ones they like best. My favorite is the Orbi system, O-R-B-I, which is a Netgear product, seems to be the most robust and sophisticated, but typically is the most expensive of them. If you really need reliable internet in your home, Orbi is where it's at. Joel? Clark Carroll says, I don't usually buy service contracts or extended warranties, but there are so many electronics in new cars. So would it be wise to spend close to $2,000 for one of these extended warranties on one of my, on a brand new car that I bought? That is a great question. Don't buy it when you buy your car. If you're going to decide to keep that vehicle long term, as you get close to the end of the mileage cap, on the manufacturer's original warranty or the year's cap on a manufacturer's original warranty. Let's say baseline, most manufacturers, three years, 36,000 miles. Some are significantly longer than that. That's when you want to buy the manufacturer's own extended warranty if that's something you would choose to do. The, you know, the math on an extended service contract or extended warranty on an automobile is no more favorable to you than it is on other things you might buy one on. In other words, it's not favorable to you. But the expense you can face as an unexpected expense can be quite large. And that's why it's the one form of extended warranty or service contract I'm neutral on is for a vehicle. But the only kind to buy is from the manufacturer itself, maybe through one of their franchise dealers, 
but make sure you're getting the actual branded warranty for your vehicle, not some UFO one that the dealership is pushing on you. And never buy it when you get the vehicle, because remember, you have that manufacturer's coverage at first, and who knows if you'll end up keeping that vehicle for the entire period of the manufacturer's warranty. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you have a question for me, post it at clark.com slash ask, and then producers Kim and Joel alternate asking your questions. I think, Kim, you're up. All right. This is from Bob in Connecticut. He wants to know your opinion of the WOW computer. He hears it is particularly made for seniors. The WOW computer is looking at a very specialized market, kind of like the jitterbug phone is for cell phones that overcomes the complexity of computers. But it's a lot of money. It does not seem to me to be priced right for the marketplace at all. It is uh, over $1,000 for a very basic computer. And the functions that it designs to make it easy to use are these very simple clickable buttons that are on the left-hand side of the screen for you to web surf or to check email, that kind of thing. But it is a a market that, although I think it's very thoughtful to look for something to make that would be easier to use, I think it's a market that is far better served by a Chromebook. Chromebook, instead of paying well over $1,000, Chromebooks uh, historically start at about $99 right now because of the shortage of Chromebooks. You have to about double that, but no matter what, you will spend a great deal less money. And I don't think the supposed ease of use of the WOW computer can even approach the extreme ease of use and the much better cost points, price points of a Chromebook And Chromebooks are simple web surfing machines, ideal for a senior to use. This is the Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.